Hello and welcome to Outrage and Optimism. I'm Tom Rivett-Karnak. I'm Zoe Rivett-Karnak. And I'm Bethan Robinson. As you can hear, I have managed to find replacements for Paul and Christiana as co-hosts on this week's episode of Outrage and Optimism. As we are all still on holiday, I'm down here in Cornwall. Zoe is my daughter. How old are you, Zoe? Eight. And Beth is a friend. How old are you, Beth? Ten. Ten million. <laughs> <laughs> So this week, we're going to be bringing you a conversation that Christiana had with Tom Friedman, the New York Times columnist and author most recently of Thank You for Being Late. But just before we do that, I wanted to have a quick conversation with both of you. You're both very thoughtful kids with lots of ideas about the world and you know about climate change and have all sorts of ideas about what we need to do to work to protect the world and the plants and animals and people in it. But I wanted to start off by having a conversation and asking you if there was anything environmental or climate related that you're particularly passionate about and things that you want to do and projects that you run. Beth, let's start with you. I'm really concerned about the plastic in the ocean because we live in Cornwall and I really like marine biology and animals. So it's really sad to see loads of plastic everywhere. And when we go on walks and things, you can see plastic in the harbour and in the sea in lots of plastic bottles and things. And when the animals mistake it as food, they can get really ill. So it's really not very good. So, so what can we do to address that and make it better? Well, using less plastic is much better than using plastic and when you buy like food you can buy it well try and buy it in not plastic bags in um, uh, paper bags because then there's not plastic wrapping that just gets thrown away straight away and zoe what are you passionate about uh the palm oil trees with the ocelots because the um forest is getting down cut down for the palm oil the ocelots are are losing their homes and um they have nowhere to live and they're getting quite rare to see i see so oh i see so we're losing the forest and that and you're passionate about saving the ocelots yeah yeah and what what have you done like projects that you've done to try and improve that uh, I made a petition and I sent it to Unilever and the Vic. <laughs> nice, fantastic. And who did you have sign the petition? Uh, I can't name all the people that signed it, actually. Friends and stuff. Some of them I don't actually know. Okay. <laughs> Amazing, that's a great thing to do. Yeah. You have been great co-hosts. Thank you very much for joining me. I really appreciate it. Um, Paul and Christiana, you've got work to do to you know, work your way back into the podcast. Um, but thank you very much, everyone, for dialing in. Uh, I will leave you now and uh, we'll go to the conversation that Christiana had with the remarkable Tom Friedman. Thanks for listening. Thanks for being here, guys. Um, we'll see you next week. Bye. everyone this is Christiana I know um, Tom wants us to go straight into the Tom Friedman interview but I think it's necessary to give Tom Friedman a little uh, formal introduction here this episode is about wisdom we've just heard wisdom from the mouth of babes and now we go to wisdom from the mouth of a not so babe Tom Friedman 
a renowned U.S. political commentator, New York Times columnist, and prolific author. He is three times Pulitzer Prize winner. He is the author of seven books, uh, many of them award-winning books. He started writing about the Middle East, and he is now writing about many other issues as well, globalization, international affairs, and certainly environmental issues. I would say he cut his teeth on uh, climate change with his 2008 book, Hot, Flat and Crowded, Why We Need a Green Revolution, where he presented a very strong case for why the United States should and could take a leadership on climate in order to have many national benefits as well. In 2014, he was the correspondent for the documentary Years of Leaving Dangerously, and he was a correspondent for the 2016 documentary on, uh, on with the same title, both of them dedicated to climate change. He is one of the most thoughtful thinkers on the nexus between economics, politics, and climate change. We have an incredible opportunity to speak to him today. So, Tom, thank you very much for coming on our podcast, Outrage and Optimism. You and I have just been at a fantastic event and have uh, shared a stage, uh, and it has um, made me think that uh, you are, as usual, thinking ahead and uh, reading the tea leaves of what we have in the present in order to be able to interpret what might be happening in the future. Your usual wonderful style. I appreciate it. Thank um, you. So I wanted to first ask you to summarize for us what we heard today, uh, which is your journey. You're such a prolific writer, but your journey of having seen the world as flat, and where are we now? First of all, thank you for having me, Christian. This is a treat um, to be able to speak to your audience. So um, uh, what I tried to explain is that technology moves up in steps. Um, and each step tends to be biased toward a certain set of capabilities. And I would argue that around the year 2000, a set of technologies came together that were biased toward connectivity. And that was because the dot-com boom, bubble, and bust collapsed the price of fiber optic cable. And um, uh, so we basically we, we wired the world almost by accident. And we woke up, uh, all of us, uh, almost no matter where you lived, America, Costa Rica, Africa, and discovered that you could touch people you could never touch before. And you could be touched by people who could never touch before. We, we had made connectivity fast, free, easy for you. And who you. you will never know. Yeah, exactly. We, we had made connectivity fast, free, easy for you, and ubiquitous. Mm. And I gave that moment a name. I said, feels like the world is flat. Flat. Yeah, okay. Yeah. Um, around 2007, I would say we, we hit another um, uh, platform. We stepped up to another platform. It was also driven by a price collapse, and it was the collapse in the price of compute and storage. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, we just made storage just like really massive, and we made compute power really massive and, and, and really cheap. And as a result, it gave us big data and the beginnings of AI. And what that did was um, uh, that new platform was biased toward complexity. We made complexity fast, free, easy for you, and invisible. Suddenly, with one touch of my cell phone now, I could page a taxi, direct a taxi, rate a taxi, be rated by a taxi. And all with one little touch 
on this cell phone. Magical little finger. Exactly. <laughs> so we, we, we abstracted away, and we did that everywhere. We put grease into everything. So the world became fast. And I would argue um, where we are today, we took another step up, and this step is biased toward intelligence. We're putting, things to sensors um, and the Internet of Things, we're putting intelligence into everything. This little phone, this microphone, that lamp, that door, the key to that door, they all have intelligence in them now. So we're basically um, creating a world now with no touch. All kinds of things can happen. An example I give is I was in my car the other day in Washington, D.C. I was driving downtown, and my cell phone came alive, unbidden by me, and said, you have an interview in your office in 35 minutes, and you're 40 minutes away. And I was sort of taken aback. It had obviously matched up ways with my date book, you know. This time someone else is going to be right. happy that you were late. Exactly, that's right. <laughs> Turning the tables <laughs> on you. You, <laughs> you better believe it. So, um, and all, that'll happen with no touch. So we've gone really quickly from what I would call flat to fast to smart. Mm. And I think where we're going now is these three together mm-hmm. are giving birth to another step up and, um, or really step down. Now we're going deep. Now these technologies, as we've heard at this conference, they can, they can go into your DNA. They can even adjust your DNA. They can go deep into the privacy of your home. Um, they can go um, wonderfully in the world deep of science. We can now find the needle in the haystack as the norm, not the exception. So things are going deep in ways that are, are positive and, and troubling. Um, but I would argue deep is the word of the year. Look at all things we're applying the word deep to. Deep state, deep fake, deep surveillance, deep research, deep mind, deep knowledge. Everything's being called deep. And, of course, the song of the year at the Oscars was shallow. But the main refrain is, you know, we've left the shallows now. We're off in the deep end. Now, there's so much to be gained from going deep, so much deep knowledge and so much deep research. But what this is doing is it's changing unpredicted um, the U.S.-China relationship. So how so? Um, so uh, can, Trump- we put, can we put an, uh, a parenthesis to yeah, this? Please, yeah. Because I think um, some listeners might not know that one of the very important components of having been able to adopt a Paris Agreement across the board with 195 countries was the fact that U.S. and China signed four bilateral agreements Hmm. between themselves in the run-up to Paris. And they managed to align developed countries and developing countries, not easily, but it is absolutely, I mean, that was not the only reason for the success, but without that alignment, we probably would not have had the Paris Agreement. I didn't realize it was four. four, That's very interesting. Four bilateral agreements. So, So where are we now? Now, if we had to do the, the Paris Agreement right. this year, would we? No, and this is no. where, where deep, unfortunately, meets green. Yeah. And, um, and so what have we seen? So Trump launched a trade war uh, with China um, for some very legitimate reasons in terms of blocked access of American technologies. And he set up on that path probably about uh, 12, maybe 15, 16 months ago now. It's been a while. Um, and um, they keep having these negotiations and they keep failing. So why is that? It's because our relationship with China, our trade relationship, I would argue, has gone deep. So what do I mean? So for 30 years, as China grew from poverty to middle income, they sold us T-shirts, toys, and tennis shoes. And we bought from them, uh, and they bought from us, uh, soybeans and Boeings. Okay? And we, when we bought too many T-shirts, toys, and tennis shoes, they bought more soybeans and Boeings. Um, and when that was the case, we didn't care whether they were 
communist, socialist, what their ideology was, authoritarians, mm-hmm. uh, libertarians, or vegetarians. We we didn't care at all. We were just buying their T-shirts, toys, and tennis shoes. But now, of course, China wants to make uh, cell phones, five G, uh, supercomputers, uh, all these items that we make, and God bless them for that because there'll be competition around all those things. That's a good thing. Brings um, the price down. Brings the price down and, and the um, quality up, hopefully, mm-hmm. over time. But um, all those items are dual use. Mm-hmm. Dual use in the sense they all have potential intelligence or military capabilities. And so the Huawei story, the story of China's basically 5G equipment company and cell phone company, is that um, uh, they now want to sell 5G to communities all over America, as they've done in Europe and in Central America and in Africa. And people are saying, wait a minute. Huawei 5G, they're they're deep then. They're they're literally deep in my house. They're deep in my telecom infrastructure. They're deep in my brain. In my brain. And (laughs) and I could maybe have a Huawei bot in my house, a Huawei cell phone. And can I trust that? So suddenly the difference in values between us and China Mm -hmm. now really matters. Mm -hmm. And it's really causing all this trade friction because um, they want to sell us things that are deep inside us. And, and Trump is, is resisting that. And I'm very concerned about this because we could be heading for a two internet. We could be heading for a digital Berlin Wall in which you'll have a two internet, two technology world. And if that happens, um, uh, the kind of cooperation that gave help to give birth to the Paris Climate Agreement between the two pillars of globalization mm-hmm. is no more. Is no more. Mm-hmm. And, um, and, the kind of globalization as we've known it with the peace and prosperity and also negative side effects that it's brought, but it did deliver a lot of peace and prosperity, will no longer be with us. And when? At what time? Right when we're at this critical juncture in terms of the climate where where the, the scientists are telling us we're, we're right at this point where um, if we don't uh, forge ahead and mitigate um, climate change, um, we're going to leave the point where we are now, which is a point where we can manage um, uh, the unavoidable and we can avoid the unmanageable. Mm-hmm. And, uh, we and don't want, that won't be long. And that won't be long. We don't want to leave that point. And what do you need for that? Well, to make progress uh, on mitigating climate change, you need scale. The only two people who can provide scale are China and America, shaped by the market, you know, by, by shaping the market with the right incentives. And China and America may be coming unstuck. I am so glad you reminded me that it was four uh, bilateral, bilateral agreements between the U.S. and China that paved the way for mm-hmm. the Paris Climate Agreement. And um, I wish I'd known that. You know, when we, when we spoke this morning, it, now, it makes the point even more yeah, profoundly. Yeah, yeah. No, it, it really does. But but now, Tom, yeah. um, when you look at what China is doing. China is actually taking an incredible leadership in all of these technologies because they know, first, it's good for their human health, their public health. Secondly, it's good for their economic health because these are the products and services that we're going to be demanding more and more and they want to be competitive. Yes. Um, And uh, it's good for them politically because they want to lead the world, right? So in the absence of U.S. leadership, they are happy to step in to uh, to leadership. So um, question, how much is the absence of the United States actually going to affect China, in particular when you cannot say that monolithically the United States is not participating? Because, right. yes, the, the federal government right. has a very 
sad and pathetic yes. position. Yeah. But you have California, you have many of the other right. states, you have car companies that are now going against the yeah. intended right. um, rollback of car vehicle uh, emission standards um, because my sense is that the private sector in the United States, not all of it, but there is a very important part of the private sector in the United States that understands that this is the way of the future right. and that they don't want to be the last ones with the obsolete toys. Right. They would rather be competitive and move forward. So I would say that's a 1.5, right? That's China fully on board, right. 0.5 in the United States, right, yeah. and a 0.5 of the United States not moving forward. Right. What does that mean? Well, I, you know, that's I'm a, a 1.5 world. Right, right. I'm just, I like that. I'm, I'm going to be a little jingoistic here, not, not in the, in the military sense, but. I think what America does like really matters. That it really sets the tone for the world in many ways. And when we go dirty, when we sanction, when we deny climate change as a government, when we um, sanction and encourage coal companies to um, uh, come back into business and to use more coal, when we try to actually make our cars consume more oil, um, more gasoline, as Trump is trying to do, um, we just send a terrible signal to the world. Now, yes, countries like China, that are big enough, um, uh, can say we're, we're going to go green no matter what. But the pace at which they go green um, and uh, the speed, scope, and scale will, will be affected by what we do. Yep. Whereas we could be the leaders. You know, often, in, about 10 years ago, I used to go to China and people would often say, hey, it, 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 Mr. Friedman, look, it, it's our turn. It's our turn to grow dirty. You guys got to go dirty for 150 years of the Industrial Revolution, and now it's our turn. So, and I would say to them, you're right. Absolutely. It's your turn. Grow as dirty as you want. Because what we're going to do is invent all the green, clean, new technologies, and we're going to come over here and sell them to you as you choke to death. Yeah. And then they step back and say, whoa, maybe, you know, and my point is... Simple. It may be the opposite now. I think there's the a, ones that are having all of those technologies. Christian, we may go from importing our oil from Saudi Arabia to importing our green technologies from, from China, China, and the whole Absolutely. thing will skip over yeah, America. Yeah, yeah. Now, I don't think that uh, that's going to happen. I hope not, because as you said, we're still a 0.5. There's still a lot of American companies and states that get it. But there's nothing like having the scale and force of the federal government behind this approach and particularly shaping the markets, the, role, the rules, the taxes and incentives to, to get us to go green. And what I tried to remind people of today, we're, we're at 7.3 billion on the planet and the UN says we're going to 8.5 um, by uh, 20, 2030. Now, that's another 1 Point two billion to house, people. Feed, educate, clothe. just think about that. Yep. Just think about the airports we went through today with another one point three billion people. The, the roads we drove on. I'm, I'm here. We are in this beautiful Sicily, but I was struck. I don't know if you noticed since we were here last, uh, since I was here last year. There's a whole new housing development that took out a um, a winery that was mm. on the side of the hill over there. Now, what happens when there's another 1.3 billion people? God bless them. They're as entitled to the you know, to life on this planet as anybody else. But um, I think if they all want to live in American-sized homes, eat American-sized Big Macs, and um, uh, drive American-sized cars, we're going to have a huge problem. And that's why I believe clean power, clean energy, clean water simply have to be the next great global industry. And what I say to Americans that resist that is, um, how do you think America can possibly remain the world's biggest uh, economy and the greatest power if it doesn't dominate the next great global industry? So I'm, I'm, I think that people don't appreciate how serious a moment this is. 
And so let's talk about speed. Yeah. Let's talk about speed and urgency because on the one hand, you know, you started by saying we everything is going so fast. And uh, if, if there's one mantra that I hear constantly is change is now occurring faster than we ever thought possible. Right. True on some things. Change on decarbonizing the economy is much slower than it has yes. to be. Yeah, so there is a dissonance there yeah. in speed, yeah. right? There's a huge dissonance, and we can pay a very high price for the dissonance of that speed. Now, what is going to address that? Is it the politics between US and China? Is it more enlightened investment? Is it regulation? Is it all of the above? Is it the Greta Thunbergs, you know, screaming right. on the streets? What is it? Well, if you look back, um, you'd have to say, I think we're kind of waiting for the perfect storm. And the perfect storm is a storm that's big enough to finally end this climate debate, this stupid climate debate that we're having in America but not so big as to end the world. But close to it. Yeah, exactly. Because we're very because close. It, but but it, it, it's like we're almost waiting just to be smacked in the head by I don't know how many hurricanes or how much sea level rise that, that takes out an American city, God forbid, I mean, or any, any coastal city, and um, anywhere, and we say, whoa, 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 we, this is real, and now we got to get organized. But I feel like until then, there's wow. still these doubters, and there's, there's whole industries that, feed that doubt, um, that uh, I, I really worry. And so that's why having an American president, a Brazilian president, who's on the right side of this issue, not feeding the wrong side, is so important. Mm -hmm. And if you think of our hemisphere here, the two biggest countries are led by climate deniers. Mm -hmm. We have a guy who's selling, wants to sell the Amazon. Yep. Um, and, and, and Trump um, wants to take us back to coal. Big, beautiful coal. Yeah, big, beautiful coal, big, beautiful, clean coal. Right, exactly, yeah. yeah. I mean, it's... Um, uh, com completely denying the fact that there ain't it, no okay, more coal. That's right, exactly. <laughs> yeah, so it's, uh, it's, it's worrying. It's very worrying. But, but Tom, is that, um, is that your only hope? Is the only hope, is the only way that we're going to accelerate this is really to have the perfect storm that's going to wipe out, I don't know, one it, it quarter of humanity? It just feels like human beings are so um, built not to face this challenge. What is this challenge? Very unique challenge that we actually have to limit ourselves to be stewards for a generation that hasn't been born yet. Yeah. And it so fights with human nature that we be what? stewards. Well, wait, let me for, push back know, on that. Yeah. Let me push back on that because as parents, isn't that what we do? All the time. On the individual, individual level, level. But collectively. That is what we do. That is our DNA. Right, yeah. That is our job description as parents. Right. Is precisely to protect our children that are born now and children still unborn of other people. Right. So what's the school? Why can we not extend what we do as yeah. individuals to do it collectively? Yeah. Um, it's, it seems to be how we're wired as human beings, number one, partly that resist that collectively because um, uh, there's a sense of unfairness. Why, why should I give up? You know, I make less than you or, or whatever. There's, that's part of it. And because we're in such an age of populism uh, where, you know, um, it, it's just so easy to get uh, into office now by playing the other card. You know, why should we sacrifice if the Chinese haven't sacrificed? And, you know, um, it's just so easy to do this stuff without um, uh, you can get a lot of political traction by being really selfish um, and naughty today. And Donald Trump is an example of that. 
Could I suggest that another piece might mm. be that we do not have the vision clear enough. We're still thinking that there's a burden right. that I have to sacrifice right. and I'm not going to sacrifice any more than my neighbor has sacrificed. Right. But the fact is, Tom, why do we not have the imagination to catapult ourselves into the year 2040 and see so much better world and actually get that to be contagious right, yeah. and, you know, everybody enthusiastically working toward a much better world. We have not used the power of incentive mm -hmm. and optimism, of, an optimism yeah. of a powerful vision yeah. of what could be. What happened to that? Yeah, I, I totally, I think it's a real failure of politics. I mean, you know, I was watching the American presidential debates, you know, with the Democrats, you know, coming up and everyone's, there's just such a downer um, on talking about, you know, nationalizing healthcare and whatnot. And no one's out there saying, we, we have the most, I have the most exciting project in the world, my, my fellow Americans. I want America to win the earth race. Yeah, exactly. Not the space Exactly, the earth, the earth race. race. I yes. want us to invent all the clean power technologies that will allow men and women to stay here, and plants and animals, to stay here on earth. Exactly. Come with me. This is going to be so exciting. Exactly, exactly. And if we leave that, think about how the world will look at us morally. By the way, if we if we also impose certain restraints on ourselves, we will become such leaders where we will be so respected. There will be so many people who want to join this parade to be associated with our technologies. Um, so come with me on that journey. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Let's win the earth race. But, but it's, you know, it's just amazing how... It's how, a poverty of imagination. It's a poverty yeah. of imagination. Yeah. And instead of that, you know, are, are we really going to uh, be taken to the historical court of justice yeah. and be found guilty right. of crimes against humanity? Because yeah. that's what we're doing. Yeah, we, we and are instead the... of that, we could build humanity so oh, yeah. much more so much better. Yeah, we, we will be seen as the generation that threw out its umbrella right before the storm. So what is regeneration, Tom? It's, You've used um, that. Yeah, um, I, I used it in my book, Hot, Flat, and Crowded, that we can be um, the regeneration. That is, we are the ones, by taking the lead on all these clean, green technologies, that um, we are the ones who regenerate nature. Yep. We regenerate our economy. We regenerate our moral standing in the world by becoming the greenest country on the planet. And um, and that's why my motto is green is the new red, white, and blue. Because mm -hmm. um, uh, I think it's the most patriotic, uh, innovative, um, uh, moral, um, economically um, incented uh, policy we could go down. It's just so obvious. What's different today than when you first wrote that? Well, it's are you more than, optimistic or less that we I'm actually? A, I'm, I'm a little less because less. we really haven't made much progress than. Other than things like the Paris Climate Agreement, mm -hmm. you know, which we've now pulled out of, you know, um, so that's that's. But what what is good and what is new is now the technologies are here. Yeah, you absolutely. Know, solar can be cheaper than it, we can than than coal and solar than, is cheaper, cheaper than exactly. Coal in, 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 many in almost, yeah, exactly. And sometimes with subsidies, sometimes it's not. Never mind. Uh, it's on our. It's on its way. The technology is there, uh, and, and all it takes is the will to deploy them and to create enough incentives around them to scale. You know. And, um, but that takes leadership. And I think so many young people are dying to be led on this issue. I think even a lot of Americans... Or to lead. And, yeah, exactly, yeah. <laughs> uh, but I think a lot of Americans, in particular this year, you know, between the wildfires in California, the crazy weather extremes we've had, I think there's a lot of Americans who think, you know, something's going on here. And, yeah. um, uh, and, and, they're, they're, and I would make this a big issue. I put, 70% in I put, US. Yeah, I put, Mother understand. I put Mother Nature on the ballot. Yeah. If, if I were running, you know. 
Um, but what do I know? I'm just a journalist. So let's talk about the running of the campaign. Mm -hmm. um, two last questions. Please. You're at the New York Times, so uh, that newspaper has a particular political hue. Yeah. Uh, but you have been really quite extraordinary at, uh, at really opening your mind and being fair yeah. um, and recognizing yeah. success yeah. where others would not want to recognize. So I have two questions. What has this U.S. administration done well? And how do you read the tea leaves for the election in 2020? Yeah. Um, well, I, I'm not sure I'd use the term done well. There are things they've done that I agree with. Okay. Um, uh, just mostly just one thing. I do believe that we needed to uh, uh, call China on some of its abusive trade practices as they move from selling us toys, T-shirts, and tennis shoes to selling us supercomputers, AI, and 5G that we would be crazy if we allowed them to use the same shenanigans they did in the past on these new technologies. So I, I think Trump was directionally right about that. I would have gone about it in a completely different way. I would have gone about it by signing TPP, the Trans-Pacific Trade Agreement, which was a whole sort of 21st century trade agreement based on our values. Then I would have aligned with the Europeans around our values. Creating an alliance, create yeah. alliance. And then I would have made it the world against China. Instead, Trump made it America against China. And that's easy for the Chinese to deflect, you know, or a lot easier. So, um, uh, you know, that's that's what I'm really concerned. But they, the you know, Donald Trump is not the president that America deserved, Christian. But but he is the president. He, he's not the American president America deserves. But he is the American president China deserves. Whoa! Yeah. What does that mean? I mean, they they needed a, a little two by Slap four. Slap on the hands. Yeah, exactly. You know. Um, but it, it needs to be done in a sophisticated way because mm. you 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 don't want to shame them. They have pride too. Yeah. Um, uh, they have points that that are defensible. Uh, but um, so I, I happen to agree with. We needed to be in this engagement with China. Would have yeah. done it differently. Um, I would not have torn up the Iran nuclear deal. Mm. Um, but now that he's done it, I, if I were him, I would be settling right now. I'd come back to my European, Chinese, and Russian partners and say, let's. Let's put a, a deal on the table they can accept, you know. Um, there's just too much uh, striking out by Trump, uh, start a trade war, start an economic war with Iran without a real plan for the morning after the morning after. You know, what, what is it about? What's he going to settle for? Because you don't want to get, um, you just want to launch into these things without knowing what is your exact bottom line. And I'm not sure he knows. So what's the morning after the next U.S. presidential election? Well, you know, what do um, we wake up to if yeah. we're asleep? Because we don't sleep all that <laughs> night. Oh boy, oh boy, there's so much at stake. I think it's certainly the most important election in my lifetime. Um, you know, I, I just think it's way too early. I'm not sure we've seen any candidate emerge. In fact, I know that we haven't, and I, I just think it's it's too early to say. Hmm. Yeah, um, I'm. I just know one thing: this is the most important election of my lifetime. Wow. Because um, this is not which party wins or loses. This is about the basic norms, standards, ethics, and values of, of, the, country. Uh, of the country, its administration. And by its extension leader. of the world. Yeah, and that's why um, I, I just hope that um, Trump is defeated um, yeah. by someone who can also then, uh, I think, repair the country because there's just a lot of broken China. A lot. Tom Friedman, thank you very, very much for taking the time and joining us today. Thank you. My pleasure, Christiana. Thank you for having me.
So thanks for listening to this episode of Outrage and Optimism. This has been a great few weeks for the podcast and we've been doing interviews and receiving lots of feedback and comments from many of you. We really appreciate that. Any issues that you want us to discuss, people you want us to talk to, we're always up for a challenge of trying to get to somebody. So let us know what's interesting and we'll get on it. So Outrage and Optimism is a production of Global Optimism. It is produced by Clay Carnell. The team includes Pete Cotton-Brock, Chloe Revel, Natasha Rivett-Karnak, Marina Mancilla, Alejandra Vargas-Morera, Callum Grieve, and Zoe Cholakantich. I'd also like to thank Nigel Topping and Michael Northrup. You can connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter, and please do subscribe. We'll see you next week.